The Scuttlebutt is proud to welcome Millerstown Pick Apart, a self-service salvage yard where you can get parts you need for your car, truck, or van at very attractive prices because you do the work. Bring your own wrenches, hammers, screwdrivers, sockets, jacks, drills, or whatever you need, except for torches, to wrestle out the parts you need for the vehicles in the yard. Millerstown Pick Apart was created 17 years ago to provide reasonably priced solutions for auto parts needs. Millerstown is the perfect fit for those seeking discount auto parts to repair their own vehicles. Millerstown has a huge inventory of cars, which they purchase from individuals, towing companies, and auctions, and from its sister auto salvage recycling operation. For hours, directions, inventory, parts availability, and pricing, you can go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D, pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. That's pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. In my case, I would have never thought I was doing this you know, when I was riding around on tanks and stuff. It's so critical that the army puts, or the military puts all this effort into helping these families too. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. I say host, but we're gonna uh, do like we did in season three and Catherine Guyon, uh, the news anchor for WTRF in Wheeling and host of the Veterans Voices on YouTube. Uh, we'll be hosting our episode today, which we're super excited to talk about. Uh, our representatives from the DPAA, uh, we're gonna give you all the information here in just a minute. But first, if you've been watching The Scuttlebutt and you've been enjoying it, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube. And if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, anything really that comes to mind, uh, you can email me at Sean, that's S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Uh, we will have links in the chat and uh, we'd love to hear from you about uh, all the topics that we're going to be discussing today. Um, without further ado, I'm going to hand it off to Catherine. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite days because it's when my work in TV and my work with the BBC collide. Um, every once in a while, you get a story that comes across your news desk that you just know is going to be special. So a few months ago, we received a press release from the DPAA that a service member named Private First Class John Sitars from Weirton, West Virginia, had been identified after, you know, his, he passed away and his family believed he was lost. So in contacting his family, I also met our first guest, who is Jim Bell. He is an identification specialist with the U.S. Army, and I'm also pleased to introduce Sergeant First Class Sean Everett, who is a spokesperson for the DPAA, which for those of you who don't know, stands for Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, but we'll call it the DPAA for short. So I would like to welcome both of you to the program and start off with a question that I'm sure a lot of people are wondering. I'll let you explain it. What is the DPAA? Hi, Catherine. Thanks. Yeah, um, the DPAA, Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, our whole mission, the whole reason we exist is to account for the service members who are still missing from our past modern conflicts going all the way back to World War II. So that includes the Korean War, the Cold War, Vietnam, um, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Uh, there are no, no POWMIAs currently from Afghanistan or Iraq So um, that are military members. There are, uh, I think, three contractors um, who are missing. So, you know, we keep an eye, you know, keep an eye out for them as well. But, uh, but yeah, our whole purpose is to 
find, recover, and bring home those service members who never made it home. And we will get into a little bit more about how that's done in a second, but I want to bring in Jim as well because he has a, a very interesting job, at least I think anyway, once these service members are identified, then Jim has the, the honor and privilege, as you told me, of identifying the families and giving them more information about, you know, how exactly their loved one passed away and where they were found and things like that. So, Jim, tell us a little bit about your end of all of this. Yeah, I, I, rep I work for the United States Army. So Sean works at Department of Defense level DPA, and uh, we work hand in glove with those guys. Um, he's, his agency has a recovery mission. So when the DPA identifies a soldier that belongs to the Army, it comes to a, a section that I work in. And then I, I have the honor, the pleasure. I contact the family. I uh, notify them that their loved one's been identified. And then I set up a meeting with them and I, I actually go meet with the family and, and I discuss all uh, how the soldier was identified, the various methods, uh, a little bit about the history of how he was lost and how he was recovered. And then uh, after that, we discuss how they'd like him uh, um, interred or buried, you know, the funeral plan. So then the, uh, I go with them through them with the mortuary affairs benefits that they get and uh, help them arrange for a funeral to honor the sacrifice of loved ones. So, it's, it's a great mission. I, I really, um, what I enjoy is I get to actually go talk to and visit with the families. And you mentioned John Sitar's, you know, that was his sister. So that was a, you know, very, very special meeting, wonderful family. And obviously this is a, an effort that's quite literally around the world. So where are you guys and where all is this mission spread out at? Cause I remember talking from you, Jim, that there's a lot of places, not only where the DPAA is searching for these service members, but also where they're doing the identifications and things like that. So where all in the world are we? Jim, I'll let you go first, because uh, my part is probably going to take a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Catherine, I, the case uh, for uh, John Sitars was lost out of Germany. I mentioned I'm working a case uh, later this week for a Korean War chosen reservoir. Uh, I did a case recently in uh, uh, near West Virginia on the border there with Ohio for a soldier that was recovered from Burma. Um, I've done New Guinea. I've done Tarawa, um, all through Europe, uh, down in Italy, Croatia. But Sean has a better handle, really, of all the various places that they're doing recovery missions. And um, they also are doing disinterments. But uh, it's it's amazing what DPA does. And Sean can tell you all those places where they're out searching. Can you define for me disinterment? Um, yeah, I'll, Sean, you can back me up on this. A disinterment, mm -hmm. for example, there's a 800-something soldiers that were laid to rest in uh, the Punch Bowl. It's a National uh, Military uh, Cemetery national, of the Pacific. National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific. And, mm -hmm. and uh so those soldiers are classified as unknown. They were laid to rest as unknown soldiers. They have headstones that say unknown, but uh, DPA has these tremendous records from Korea, World War II. And uh, they're constantly researching what we know about the unknown soldier. And then if uh, they get enough evidence or information, then they'll get a disinterment and they'll uh, um, take the remains from uh, the grave and then put them in the lab and in the lab, they can run more modern day forensic tests. DNA is really the big one, but they're, you know, Sean can mention the numbers, but um, 
they've got a major undertaking in, uh, in the punch bowl in Hawaii. And then also in Europe, um, on, uh, Hurtgen Forest was, uh, John Sitars. John Sitars was a disinterment. Um, so he was lost in Hurtgen Forest. And that's one of the areas that the DPA analysts and historians are looking at to see what we can find out and get those remains to modern day lab. But hope I got that right, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, all, no, all that was perfect. Yeah. So I am actually physically located in the in the Washington, D.C. area. That's where the DPA headquarters is. Now, we also have uh, we have two major labs. Um, we have a major lab in at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam in Hawaii on Oahu. And then we also have another major lab at Offutt Air Force Base just outside of Omaha, Nebraska. And that's where all of the all the remains that we that we analyze and identify, they all go through one of those two labs. Now we also have a um, smaller, it's not really a lab, but uh, detachment in uh, at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and then we we have detachments literally all over the world. We have a European uh, European detachment, and then we have a detachment in. Vietnam, we have a detachment in Laos, we have a detachment in Cambodia. Um, and then in addition to those, we also literally have teams that go all over the world. So like Jim mentioned, you know, we have teams that are currently working in Europe. Um, we have teams that are uh, out in Southeast Asia. We have teams that are in the, um, on islands in the Pacific Ocean. Um, you know, we have teams anywhere that that we know of that we may have missing service members that we've been able to do the research and the investigation to find where they may possibly be. Uh, you know, we have people out there. Now we do partner with a lot of uh, a lot of different organizations, um, schools, businesses, nonprofits, things like that, who also help us go out and do some of these recoveries. You know, COVID has been especially challenging, you know, not just, I mean, for everybody, but for us um, just in, on the operational side of things, because we haven't been able to send out as many organic teams as we normally would. Um, we've had several be able to go out this year, you know, this spring and, and summer. Um, but with the current resurgence, you know, we're, we're unfortunately having to, to cut back and that's not that, it, it's a mix between us and the countries that we're going into because many of them are, are imposing stricter travel restrictions, even though we always make sure that we uh, abide by all of the safety regulations between vaccinations and masks and um, quarantine when we, when we get there, quarantine sometimes before we go, you know, things like that. Um, but, but yeah, we're, literally all over the world, primarily Europe or, um, or the Pacific. Uh, but, you know, if, if there's someone missing from one of our, you know, past modern conflicts, then we are, whether we've gone there or we're researching it, you know, there is a good chance that, uh, that we at least know about it and are, uh, are looking into the possibility of being able to get out there and recover those service members. A big part of it uh, from kind of what Jim said in the question about disinterment is there are a lot of unknowns buried in American cemeteries all over the world 
um, that we that we also try to identify because you know those unknowns yes they are buried in an american cemetery their their remains were not uh, were fortunately recovered and unfortunately not able to be identified and those service members still uh, still deserve to be identified and their families deserve to know what happened to those service members so uh, we have there are american cemeteries all over Europe, several in Italy, several in, you know, several in France. There are some, a couple in Belgium, uh, the Netherlands. Uh, like I said, there are American cemeteries all over the world that are uh, run by the American Battle Monuments Commission. Uh, and we work very closely with them to be able to disinter these unknowns and, um, and get them safely and securely from those cemeteries to our labs, whether they go, uh, whether the remains go to our lab at Offutt Air Force Base or Joint, uh, Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. Um, but yeah, all over the world, there's also an American cemetery in Manila in the Philippines that, uh, that we've been doing a lot of World War II work out of. Um, and yeah, like I said, we're just all over the world. Last I checked, and I know this number fortunately goes down quite frequently, but last I checked as of yesterday, there are still 81,600 service members that are unidentified. So I'm curious as to how, you know, obviously this is not a fast process, but as to how quickly this, this works, because Jim, you said you're working on multiple cases right now, and I, I feel like just our news station in the last several months, we've gotten multiple press releases for um different soldiers from West Virginia and Ohio being identified. So how, like, how quickly does this process move? So really the, the speed of the process depends. Um, it really depends on the case. It depends on, um, you know, uh, if it's a disinterment, if it's actual, an actual field recovery mission, uh, depends on if we have DNA family reference samples from members of that service member's family. Um, you know, it, there's a there's a lot of different different things, different factors that go into how long it takes. Now, um, going back to the eighty one thousand over eighty one thousand six hundred service members still missing, um, I do want to put a caveat to that number that roughly half of that number are were lost at sea and are considered unrecoverable. Um, so, you know, they were whether it be in plane crashes in deep water or, uh, or uh, ships being sunk in deep water. A lot of those, a lot of that, like I said, about half of that big, that big 81,000 number um, are lost at sea. And unfortunately with current technology and safety regulations and things like that, you know, most of those, if we can even find them would not necessarily be recoverable. Um, and I know, at least on the, the Navy side of things, the ships that are lost at sea, those wrecks, those ships are considered the final resting place of those soldiers, similar to the USS Arizona that's in Pearl Harbor, where the majority of the crew that went down with that ship, they are still interred there on the ship, and that is considered their final resting place. Uh, but then of the almost 40,000 that are considered recoverable, you know, again, it really just sort of depends on the circumstances and, uh, and things like that. So we have a numerous projects. 
one of our big projects over the last five, uh, five six years that, it, that we're actually getting close to the end of has been the USS Oklahoma project. There were 394 uh, service members from the USS Oklahoma who were recovered but were unable to be identified after the December 7th, 1941 bombing of Pearl Harbor. And those 394 uh, sailors and Marines were buried as unknowns at the Punchbowl Cemetery there in, uh, in Honolulu. And we, um, we've had since 2015, our USS Oklahoma project that has, uh, we disinterred all of the USS Oklahoma remains. Now, between 2003 and 2015, there were a cut, there were some, um, so I guess, sort of test cases for the USS Oklahoma that had been disinterred, um, and and uh, six sailors and Marines out of that out of those test cases had been identified. Um, one of the issues with the USS Oklahoma project is called commingling. And that's something we find in, I won't say all of, but a good number of cases from all over the world. And what commingling is means there is one casket, but there are multiple service members buried in that casket. Now, it's not that, you know, their bones were just sort of dumped in there and mixed, mixed together. But, um, you know, back in, the, back in the 40s, their forensic anthropology and things like that were not as advanced as, as we are today. And so they would, as best they could, try to identify these, you know, try to identify service members. But there are times where either space required that the remains that can be identified as being part of one person were, uh, you know, several sets of remains were put in the same casket. Now they were kept separately. Uh, they're usually... Um, folded in, you know, those deep, those green army blankets that, that the army still uses today. Um, they're usually folded within one of those and placed in the casket, but there may be several of those. But there are other times when there's, has been a full, what looks like a full skeleton in, uh, in one of those caskets. And you think, oh, good. Okay. That's a single person. But then we go and we do the forensic analysis, our, our scientists do the forensic analysis, uh, the forensic odontology, which is the looking at the teeth and things like that. And just through that forensic, uh, forensic anthropological analysis, we realized that there could be uh, multiple people. In fact, I wanna say there was one USS Oklahoma case where there was, they, there was like 80 people that were, uh, that were, in one represented in one casket um yeah now part of that is because you know a lot of those recoveries from the uss oklahoma were recovered long after you know long after the December 7th bombing and you know sometimes weeks sometimes months sometimes even mm -hmm. you know a year or two or three later um mm -hmm. so by the time those remains were found unfortunately there was nothing left but uh but skeletal remains, but yeah, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's like putting together a, a jigsaw puzzle where you might not necessarily have all the pieces. Jim, how early in the process do you get involved in contacting the families? I mean, do you contact them when there's like a suspicion that, hey, this may be your loved one to connect 
to get more DNA evidence? Or like, how early do you make that contact with the families? Because I'd imagine there's a fine line between like wanting to contact them, but also like you don't want to unnecessarily get their hopes up, I would think. Yeah, well, I work for past conflicts repatriation branch within the casualty branch of the Army. So we have case managers that have in the database all the missing in action soldiers for the Army. And then these case managers reach out and, and maintain contact with these family members and seek DNA and provide them outreach. DPA also hosts uh, family member updates throughout the nation where missing families are invited and they can go talk to the scientists and they can talk to the military representatives. But we maintain this database when necessary. Um, the lab that DPA has, when they get close to a identification or if they have a candidate, then they will reach out to us to make sure we have family reference samples. And those are the DNA samples. Um, so sometimes we hire genealogists that go build a family tree to find out who the next of kin are. So we have a, a, a database with all these. And normally when the laboratory is close to making identification, they, they kind of give us a heads up so that we're better prepared. Now I don't contact uh, the identifications uh, section does not contact a family member until the identification is made. So when I contact the family, we know we have a positive ID. And uh, something Sean said that uh, uh, triggered a thought with me, when I meet with a family, when I, after I notify them, I meet with them, but all those reports Sean talked about. So there, normally there, there would be a historical report where the soldier was lost and how he was recovered. And then there's a separate report, anthropology, which is remains with photos. And then there's odontology oftentimes of the teeth with photos. Um, there's a DNA report. And then sometimes there's something called a chest x-ray. Um, if a soldier's found with uh, dog tags or uniforms or bayonet, a rifle, that sort of thing, there's a, 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 a scientist that work for the labs that are expert in those items. And that would report. So when I meet with a family, I show them all that stuff. I show them the photos. I show them uh, uh, all the evidence and then go through in detail, you know, what the uh, report tells it. So it's pretty amazing what the labs and DPA does, you know, you know, when we meet with the families, it's very in-depth and full of information. And we leave the book with the family too. So they have it to share with, you know, other family and do what they wish. But uh, it's, it's a, it's a great mission. And, you know, the labs do, wonderful work and it, it's amazing what they can identify nowadays too at one point did the forensic uh science sort of uh advance far enough that the mission started i guess becoming easier um you know the remains got identified a lot faster so back in i want to say it was in the in the 90s we partnered with the uh, the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System the, uh, and their Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory. Um, we call them, uh, the, the acronym for them is AFNES, um, just shorter than saying the whole thing out every time, kind of like DPAA. Everything, um, but everything yeah, in the military, really. But. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But so we partner with AFNES and they have been our... Um, they've been the laboratory that we send all of our DNA samples to, and they do all of the DNA analysis and DNA identification for, for our mission. Um, so not just for the Army, but for everybody, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, 
Um, we've even identified a couple of Coast Guardsmen from uh, mm -hmm. from back in World War II. Um, so a couple of civilians from um, from uh, Vietnam as well. So back in the 90s is when we when we started partnering with AFMES to do the DNA identification. And that's when, uh, you know, that's really, I think, when it got easier. Now, DNA is not the only tool that we use. We use multiple lines of evidence. You know, we do the, the forensic anthropological analysis, the forensic the forensic dent dentistry, um, <laughs> the, um, you know, uh, material evidence, like Jim mentioned, uh, circumstantial evidence, where they were, where they were found, or where they were buried. Um, you know, there, there's many different lines of evidence that come together for us to be able to make a make an identification. But without a doubt, the DNA identification is uh, yeah, game definitely yeah, definitely the point where it made it much easier uh, for us to get those those IDs that probably would not have been possible in the past. Right. Hey, and are you hey, using, sorry, a follow-up question. Are you using DNA from like the, the family to sort of help match that? So they sort of, cause I wouldn't think that they took DNA back in World War II of the, no, of the soldiers. No, they, they didn't. We have to do, we have to take uh, DNA samples from the remains that we get. Um, and we'll, so we'll, we'll take a sample of the remains and those, those samples will get sent to AFME's lab, uh, which is in Dover, Delaware. And they will then analyze those samples and then compare the DNA and out the, if they're able to get DNA, which they often are, um, if they're able to get DNA out of those samples, they will then analyze that DNA and then compare it to the database of family reference samples that the, the different service casualty offices, such as what Jim works for, um, for the army, they've been, you know, in contact with these families and gotten the families to submit DNA reference samples, or, you know, sometimes the families will reach out to reach out to the, the SCOs. That's what we call the service casualty offices. Um, they'll, uh, they'll reach out to the SCOs and volunteer their, uh, their DNA. So it really, mm. it, you know, it kind of works both ways, but yeah, the DNA is definitely, definitely where, uh, I guess if you could say turned a corner towards getting more identifications, that's probably it. Sean Everett brings up a good point because a lot of cases we don't have DNA. The DNA doesn't, you know, we, they just can't get it from the remains for whatever reason, but what they can do is amazing. Um, I was able uh, Aftil got DNA. Uh, it was a B-24 pilot lost off the coast of Croatia in about 100 feet of water, and they were still able to get DNA. Uh, but what came to mind was I've had cases, uh, for example, a fighter pilot. So a fighter aircraft would be a one-man airplane, and they'll come upon a crash site, and they'll find the data plate, and the records kept in World War II are amazing. So they'll find the data plate. We know it's the pilot's fighter plane, um, and then we might find other evidence, but we're, we don't have enough remains to get a DNA match. But in that case, because of the evidence of the, of the equipment found and, you know, the crash location site, um, then uh, the lab will make an identification. So I've briefed many cases. Most of them are air crewmen from World War II. Um, but in cases like that, we don't have DNA, but you know, there's enough other evidence to get a match. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. absolutely. And then what Sean said too, like even if DNA is just a part of it. So if the, you know, if the anthropologist and the odontologist, you know, they all do it independent. And then uh, if the evidence doesn't match up where they all come together or the historian, you know, if the remains are found where they shouldn't have been found, um, you know, they all come together like a team and the medical examiner, you know, looks at what they have to, to make a determination. But uh, I think DNA is kind of the game changer. And I've seen advancements in DNA since I've started working to where IDs are made now that maybe couldn't have been made a few years back. Jim, I'm going to ask you to explain something you said to the the civilian over here. Um, when you say a data plate with the planes, what does that mean? That's a term that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, it's a. I, when I came to this job, I was kind of shocked. But in World War II, especially, they're called MACRs, missing air crew reports. But when an airplane went on a mission, they knew who was on board the plane. And they kept serial numbers of the plane. They kept serial numbers of the engines. They kept serial numbers of the weapons. So a data plate... Um, I had a crash site in France and uh, they, it was a special kind of airplane. It was a Spitfire, which is a British fighter plane. So it's kind of unusual for an American to be flying it, but he was. Uh, but they found all these various data, serial numbers, you know, the serial numbers to the radio, serial number to the weapon, serial number to the airplane. And then the uh, experts could tell by the type of airplane, it was a Spitfire. So they connected all the dots. And then the historian said, yep, that's where he was seen crashing. Um, so the idea was made. Um, in that case, we, we eventually got DNA later, too. But, you know, even without the DNA, there was enough evidence there for the identification. So, yeah, the data plates just basically, you know, if you look in your car, you know, on the engine, everything's got serial numbers to it. You know, it's crazy. But we kept records of all that stuff that now pays off for the modern day historians and analysts. I feel like there's two parts to this mission that all of you guys are on. There's the, the scientific element, which is so incredible, but then there's also the, the human element and just the emotion of it, because I'm sure emotions kind of run the gamut when you meet with these families. So Jim, like, what's that like when you're able to finally go meet these families and see them in person after speaking with them on the phone, but also like bring them all that information and also bring them that kind of sense of peace that like, hey, we finally get to lay our loved one to rest the way we want to. Yeah, it's a, uh, I've been, I've done over a hundred cases now. So John Sitars is a good example. It's a sister, but I was mostly dealing with a niece of the soldier, which was uh, the uh, sister's daughter. So I, I did a lot of telephonic coordination with her, but when I walked in the door with the, and I had a cash assistance officer, I have a uniformed soldier with me. Um, when I walked in the door, I kind of felt like I knew them already and they treated me like I was family. But the biggest emotion is I've, I've had families tell me not to use the word closure, but it is kind of like a closure. They've been waiting all these years. And then uh, I bring it with this, you know, um, this report is very in depth so I can go through the details of how the soldier is lost and where he's been for all these years. And this is how we know it's him. And then to plan a funeral is often, a big deal brings a lot of emotion. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, to me, it's very rewarding, but the families are also, it's a special generation. The world war two and the Korean war generations are, I don't know. I, every case I've been on, I think it's been the best I've been on, but they're all, you know, I'd say all a hundred are like that. Um, I hear a lot of comments where the mother, usually it's a soldier's mother or the soldier's father. Um, I'll hear comments that the mother, I wish she was here to see this day, or 
I would remember her on every Christmas or on the soldier's birthday would be in a depression type state. I've heard where the mothers often always looked at the door, hoping that he'd come walking through the door. And then I hear on the father's side, families say, I've never seen my father cry except, you know, when the news came. Um, mm -hmm. And some of them, they just always hold, they have hope, you know, that we'll find the soldier. So, you know, I'm, I kind of like when I'm, when I'm the guy making the call, it's good news. I bring, I'm bringing him good news. And when I finally get to meet him, it's, uh, if you could see the book for sitars, it's very in-depth. Um, we'll make sure to post that, that story uh, that Catherine reported on uh, in this YouTube chat here, if you're interested in checking out uh, Sitar's story. Um, it's a great video, Catherine. You did a wonderful, a wonderful yeah, job with that. Good. Um, no, thank you. And it, I'm, I'm interested in how Sean and Jim, how both of you got involved in this. <laughs> I, I would think because we've talked a lot of EBC about how it's really drilled into enlistees and draftees, leave no man behind. That's sort of like, that's, that's what you leave no soldier behind. Is that part of it? You, you're, uh, Sean, you're, you're still uh, active duty. Jim, you're a veteran. Uh, is that sort of part of the, the passion you bring to this job that you're not leaving someone behind? So part of it for me, I mean, yeah, that, it, that absolutely is you know, one of the reasons that this job matters is because it helps, you know, as an active duty service member, it does kind of help bring me a little bit of comfort knowing that if I were to go to a, uh, a war zone and would go missing, that there is an agency out there whose sole job is to find me and bring me home to my family. Um, and so, like I said, it, it does bring a little bit of comfort. Now, as to how I got involved, quite honestly, it was, I was up for assignment from the last place that I was stationed and the, um, hmm the army public affairs branch said that, you know, the figured that I would be a good fit here for DPAA with the kind of work that we do and the, the kind of stuff that I have to do on the, on the public affairs side. Um, and so, but, well, I will say, but I've, I've known about this mission the entire time I've been in the, been in the army. So I've been in the army almost 14 years, uh, been in active duty almost 19 years. I actually started out in the Navy back in the 90s uh, and then had a break in service. But, uh, but I've been in the Army almost 14 years. And so, you know, I've known about this mission since the very beginning um, and was always bummed because I, did, I had no idea that they actually had a, an enlisted public affairs slot for this mission. And I was like, man, I wish I could get stationed there so that I could do that mission because that mission sounds extremely cool and like it would be very satisfying. And then when I found out that they indeed do have a public affairs enlisted position um, and that I was selected for it, I was very, very happy and very excited to be able to come and, and work this mission for a while. Yeah, and, uh, Jim, how did you end up here? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a retired veteran um did 22 years retired i'm a tank guy so this is not was not my expertise um I, I i did grow up on the tenant no one left behind and a lot of cases like john sitars was lost in hurtkin forest we we left a whole lot of soldiers in the hurtkin because we were now not able to recover them either they were lost in the thick woods or the enemy the germans held the area and we were not able to go back and recover them. So that's, that's a shame. And that's not the norm that Sean Everett and I were raised on. You know, we, we normally go to great lengths to bring back our wounded and our deceased 
And in case of John Sitars, we just weren't. And we're doing a lot of cases in Chosen Reservoir in Korea. And we left countless soldiers back. We intended to go back and get them, but we just couldn't. The, the conditions were so bad um, that, that we just were not able to. So now we're doing it, you know, 70 years later. But to me, it's I find it very rewarding. I, I feel very proud that, you know, to be an American in the U.S. military and the Army, but, you know, the, the Department of Defense, that the U.S. military goes to all this effort to account for these soldiers because, I mean, it's amazing the work that DPA does. Um, so, yeah, it brings me great pride that, that I get to be part of this. Now, the way I came upon it is kind of, um, to be honest, when I retired from the Army, I was a, I'm a tank guy, but uh, Human Resources Command came to Fort Knox, Kentucky. That's the big administrative command in the Army. Part of that is casualties. And uh, during the height of the war, in Afghanistan and Iraq, they needed help. So I was a ma program manager of a contract. So I had about 32 employees that were working in the casualty branch. Now, all my employees were working current cases, Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and they were case managers working with the families and the casualty assistance offices throughout the nation. So that's how I came into casualties. But when I, when I went up there, I felt like a, a fish out of water, but then I learned how important the casualty section was to these families um even though i served in the army i never i've dealt with casualties in the real world uh, when i was in uniform but you know it was someone else handled the details so now i was learning all those details and then uh the way i came into this job was as a contractor i would constantly walk through the casualty branch at fort knox kentucky that's where human resources command is located and I would see pictures of recoveries and of skeletons and remains and crash sites and airplanes. And, uh, you know, I'm a history major from college days. And I, I used to find interest. So I started talking to identifications guys and they said, yeah, this is what we do. So when that job came available, I was like, man, I, I kind of like Sean Everett, you know, you kind of politic to get a job like this. And uh, I was fortunate to get it. And, you know, now, you know, for me to say I'm, kind of like a, I work casualties when I, when I tell friends and family, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a mortuary affairs officer. They kind of look at you like, oh man, that's, that's kind of, you know, poor you. And I say, no, I'm like, I mentioned earlier, I'm the guy that when I make the phone call, it's a good phone call. You know, it's mm -hmm. a, I'm, I'm bringing good news as compared to what I was doing when I first came to casualty branch. But yeah, it's a, in my case, I would have never thought I was doing this, you know, when I was riding around on tanks and stuff, but I do love it. And, uh, Actually, I would say I love the current operations, too. I mean, uh, it's it's very sad. We see a lot of bad stories. But when I was down there, I mean, it's it's so critical that the army puts or the military puts all this effort into helping these families, too. So, yeah. Now, are a lot of these service members that are recovered, are they buried at Arlington or is it just up to the family's personal preference? Like, do you, are you guys able to arrange that for them if they choose to be buried at yeah. Arlington? Yeah, I guess I'll take that one. Yes, Arlington Cemetery is an option. So the family has an option for a private cemetery, you know, for example, with family. Then they have an option for a veteran cemetery or a national cemetery. And Arlington is one of those places. Now, if they go to Arlington, they get full military honors. So they get a little church service and then they get the casket on the caisson, which is a horse-drawn caisson. And, uh, in the case of the army or all branches of the military, in our case, it's the old guard that performs the ceremony. So the old guard is the same type of folks that, you know, do the presidents and the VIPs. Um, 
and I've, I've been blessed. I got to go to a Arlington, uh, funeral for one of my cases and, uh, it's, it's fantastic, but some families, they don't want that. They prefer like the soldier buried with mom or dad. I, I'd say usually it's mom. Um, uh, so the, uh, Sitars is going to Arlington National Cemetery, but the case I worked last week is being laid to rest in a small town in Ohio next to his mother. Um, so I'd say the majority go to, to, uh, private cemeteries or family cemeteries, but, um, you know, it is the family's choice and the army, um, you know, pays for it. So we make the arrangements wherever it's going to be. Yeah, for I, I've never personally witnessed a, a funeral in Arlington, but I've seen images from it. And that's such a, you know, for people that haven't seen it, it's such a powerful moment. And it, it seems no matter where, you know, these service members are buried, it just seems like such a, you know, a, a fitting end to have them finally be able to rest with honor with their family. Yeah, it's, I mean, for people listening, if they've never been to Arlington, if I go to Washington, D.C., I always go. Um, I have friends laid to rest there, so I go pay my respects. Um, but yeah, uh, if a if a cemetery if a, a funeral is taking place, tourists are are able to watch. You know, so I was there for a Marine Corps person, um, but then the, the case I was working where it was my soldier being laid to rest. You know, the Arlington lets people come up and observe. So I would definitely recommend it to others to go go to Arlington and to watch a funeral if they can. Something else I'd like to mention to you. When these remains, these remains are either in off an Air Force base or in uh, Hawaii, when the remains come to the States to the funeral, um, there's a ceremony. So when they hit an airport like Dallas or Charlotte or uh, 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 Reagan up in D.C., um, they're met by an honors team that takes the casket from the plane and puts in a hearse. And there's a ceremony done for the soldiers, uh, when the casket comes from the lab, it's escorted. So there's a uniformed soldier that accompanies the remains all the way back to the funeral location. Um, so the families are able to go see that ceremony too. So these remains are handled with honors the whole way. It's pretty incredible. And I would say a lot of airports, Dallas is one, Charlotte's another, where um, the airline has an honors team too. So all the old veterans that work for the airline come out and have an honor team that stands to the side while the army or you know, takes care of the remains. But yeah, it's a pretty incredible and very emotional for the family. And it, it means a lot that, uh, that all this effort. And then while I'm on it, uh, if it's an air crewman from world war two, they're, they're entitled to a, uh, a flyover. So for air crewmen lost in world war two, um, in the case of the army, I go to U S air force. And then if, when, when mission, allows it, which is probably most of the time, uh, the Air Force has an aircraft that flies over uh, the cemetery when the family's there. So um, our cases get full military honors, but uh, they go all out. And uh, Arlington definitely is a pretty special place, but family gets to choose where that's going to be. You mentioned that the families have said uh, that you shouldn't use the word closure. I'm interested as to why. Yeah, I, I used it. I'd say I had two cases where I used closure in, uh, um, I think it was, it was a sibling. It was a sister, I believe. And it, it got them annoyed, uh, that I used closure because in her case, she said it, it'll never, it'll never be over. You brought him home, but he should have never been in Korea or, you know, um, so 
I, I'm cautious with that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, grief is kind of interesting even after all these years. Um, I saw it a lot when I did current operations, but even today, you know, out of maybe a hundred plus cases, I've only had a couple where um, there was people that were angry at the army or the military or the circumstances. So mm -hmm. that's why I'm, I'm cautious in using that term. Cause you know, I'm not, I am not the family member. I'm there bringing them the news, but right. it, it, yeah, to me, it's, I was going to say something, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Sometimes when, uh, when we're talking about that portion of things from DPA, we say, you know, we don't always bring, bring the family closure, but we, we do bring them answers so that they know what happened to their service member. Yeah, that, that's a good point. You know, Sean nailed it because we bring them answers, but sometimes the answers like Chosen Reservoir was awful. Hurtkin Forest was awful where John Sitars came from. But, you know, what we're telling them about how the loved one was lost is, is a, can be very rough. And then sometimes remains are not, um, if there's trauma to the remains, um, I've seen remains skeletons, if you will, where it's clear that um, you can tell how they were lost, how they, how they um, were killed in action. And it's my job to take that. And you know, I always warn the family, hey, we're gonna look at remains, are you okay with that? Some are and some are not. But if there's trauma, my, my duty is to go through and explain, okay, here is there was trauma and uh, this is how your, your loved one was, was lost, we believe. You know, mm -hmm. That can be very difficult. You know, sometimes, not very often in my cases, but sometimes it, it does you know, create anger, if you will. Right. Um, and it can be tough. It's, it's very tough usually with uh, brothers, sisters. And uh, I've had a daughter and uh, children, you know, to go through that part. And uh, honestly, some people don't like looking at the skeletal remains. They just don't. So, um, I'm sure it brings up I, a lot of, when, a lot of emotions that yeah, have um, potentially I, been buried or, or not. Of my most yeah. One of my most interesting cases was a Korean war soldier. Uh, he was a native American. He was, a uh, from the Sioux Indian tribe in South Dakota. And it was his sister. He was lost to uh, Korea. But when I took the report to her and, and uh, they were, the good news is it was a pretty complete skeleton because they're not always, as uh, Sean mentioned, sometimes they're commingled and sometimes we don't have a whole lot. But in this case, it was fairly complete. So you could kind of tell. And I just remember she just I had the book with the photo and she just kept rubbing the photo. You know, it was like for her to see it, you know, was was really all that mattered. I mean, she couldn't wait to see that part skip through all the other stuff. And she just, you know, kind of lovingly kept rubbing uh, pictures of the skeleton. So, you know, it's, I've seen a lot of interesting things, but, mm -hmm. you know, um, strong feelings, but I, you know, again, it brings me pride to see that it means that much to these families. So. And that's you know. what has to keep, you know, everyone that works with you guys going, I'd imagine, you know, cause there's, so many service members left to be recovered, but at the same time, you know, every time you are able to make an identification and bring that to that family, like knowing you're doing that, I'd imagine has to be so motivating to keep going. Cause I know this is not easy work. Yeah. I mean, the, what's difficult now too is world war two and Korean generation are getting up in the years. So, you know, a lot of the siblings, you know, we don't, I, I, I have dealt with mothers before, but, you know, usually 
at this point, there might be siblings. Um, but even those, because of the age, are you know, not as many around. So sometimes we get down to nephews and nieces and cousins. But what I find interesting, even when I work with, say, a nephew or a niece that might have never known the soldier, they know all the stories about him because I always heard it from the grandparents and, you know, from their parents, you know, about how important it was. So when the idea is made, um, that's where you hear, I wish, you know, I wish mom was here to see this, but they take great pride that now they get to handle it for, you know, it's a big deal. So even people that weren't alive during the Korean war, world war two, I mean, when we let them know we're coming with an ID, it's, it's huge to them. Um, mm -hmm. which, uh, kind of makes it even more special for me there's that element too of passing family history down because like the amount of information that you're able to give them not only from our personal context but like from a historical context you know for them to have that and be able to pass those stories down of people in their family that served and and where they were and how they passed um that has to be you know it's almost like an element of passing along history because then they'll be able to tell it to future generations like Hey, your great great uncle, great great grandfather, whatever. This is what they did for our country. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the case I did in Ohio, um, for whatever reason, you know, the, the family kind of scattered, you know, as it, it does. So uh, in this case, it was a sibling, but um, I've since I briefed the family. Part of what we do, we're real big on privacy, so you know, there is drama sometimes. I'll say there there's drama, but um, when there's not Oftentimes when your news stories hit, I'll start getting phone calls. Like in your case, your news story hit and I got calls from people that were wanting to pay their respects, but others that were relatives. And uh, it was uh, the sibling was an older 90. You remember her. She's a you know sweet lady. Um, so people say, hey, I, you know, I, I believe I'm related. So when I'm able, I can help, you know, connect the family to the primary next kin. And then this story kind of brings them together. The one I just did, I think they're going to use it as a kind of a family reunion because there's parts of the family that have not talked to one another. So um, the family reunion thing, I won't say it happens all the time because it probably happens less than it doesn't. But um, yeah, the fa I have seen several occasions where the families will will use, I guess, use the the funeral as an excuse to basically have a, a yeah. family reunion. Mm, um, absolutely. There was a, an ANC funeral, an Arlington funeral back in, back in the summer at some point where there was, there was like 130 people at that funeral um, because the family came from all corners of the United States to be there at the funeral. And some of them, you know, in talking to the family a little bit before and after, you know, some of those folks had not seen each other in like 20, 30 years um, and so, you know, there are occasions while, you know, ultimately a funeral is not a particularly happy occasion. There are occasions where, you know, times where joy does come out of this for some of the families, if only because they get to reconnect with people that either they had never been connected with in the past or they, uh, they haven't seen in a long time. And I'm sure they're probably, uh, you know, uh, fellow servicemen, maybe or women who may have served with uh, the the lost soldier, who might be a part of that as well. That the, the family might get to meet. I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, Sean, that's a good point. Um, veterans are special people. You know that. Um, so I'm in I'm in a case in South Carolina, 
And, uh, you know, I went to college in South Carolina. So it's kind of like a home. I'm with the family. It's a brother. He never talked about his, his missing brother. So all his friends in this little town in South Carolina didn't even know he had a brother. So when the news story broke, people came to him and said, I didn't know you had a brother. And he said, well, too painful to talk about. And the family, when they decided to have him laid to rest with his mom and dad in this little town, and they were worried. They said, well, there's not many of us left. And I said, you know, sir, there's probably going to be people that want to pay their respects. That's how veterans are. And there's 300 people at the cemetery. Now, they weren't family, but they were just veterans and people from the town and people interested that just came to pay their respects. Mm-hmm. Um, then we had the Patriot Guard there, too, that, you know, some motorcycle group that flies the flags and escorts remains oftentimes. But this family was blown away. But I, I can see that all the time. Um, and like what Sean said, you know, for a family to come together for Arlington, that's a big deal. I see when we get up, when we have some uh, funerals in Arlington, it seems to be, you know, everybody in the family wants to be involved to be there. Um, but I'd say that for fam- uh, private cemeteries too, but yeah, it's, it's not only families that come together, but it's all these veterans that just, you know, it, it amazes me. I think it's pretty cool, you know. Um, yeah, when we, uh, you know, when we send out the press releases, like what you all got about sitars, um, when we send those out, I send those not only to the media, but I, I have a, a regular distro list that is full of people from uh, veteran service organizations and organizations like the National League of Families, um, who they, the POW MIA flag that you know, that is even part of the DPA logo, that's their flag. Um, but I have a, a whole list of, of people from these veteran service organization and these family organizations that, uh, that these press releases go to and they help spread the word. And a lot of times they will, uh, you know, some of them will also organize, um, like Jim said, getting other veterans to come to, to, come to these funerals to pay their respects. Um. I, you've taken a look and researched onto the DPA website, and I'm, I'm very impressed with the amount of information and different things that you can find out about uh, those who have been recovered, who are still lost, um, data, graphs, information, facts, frequently asked questions. There's a lot of information on this website that we will link to, but Sean, I thought you might take a minute to just sort of walk us through some of the, the highlights of the website uh, and, and what a civilian like myself, um, if I'm interested in going on the website, what, what can I find? What should I look for? What should I be clicking for? Yeah, so, you know, to, to kind of tout the, the parts of the website that I directly affect most often, um, all, of the, all of the releases for every, every service member that we identify gets a DPA uh, news release done about their accounting and, and their identification. And so every... I know every person that we've that we've accounted for in the last two years, which I've been at DC uh, or I've been at DPA for right at two years. Um, every person that we have accounted for goes on goes on this website. So the the part you're looking at right now, that's a recently accounted for. Literally every person that we account for, once their family, so their families are kind of notified, and this is Jim's area, but are kind of notified in a couple of stages. They're first notified telephonically just to let the let them know, hey, your your service member's been been identified, and then there is a um, then they get a full briefing, which before COVID was in person, and now it's sometimes it's in person, sometimes it's you know uh, via Zoom or or 
MS teams or something like that. Like I said, that's, that's more Jim's area of things, but the, once they get telephonically notified, we put a notification on our website on that recently accounted for list. And then there's another section of the website called releases um, where we put the, uh, a shorter press release. And then once the family has their larger full briefing where the, you know, the, the casualty officer like Jim gets to show them all the photos and goes through the, the book of, of accumulated information with them. Um, once we get a notification that that has happened, then we will put out a longer release that goes more into, you know, where their, where their remains might have been and how they were found, how they were recovered, um, what we use to identify them, you know, anthrop anthropological analysis, dental analysis, DNA, material evidence, uh, circumstantial evidence, all those things. Um, you know, that'll go up there on the website. And then that longer release is the one that gets sent out to the, to the media and to those, those veteran and family service organizations. Um, so that's the part that I affect the most. But then, you know, we'll take photos. We'll either take the photos ourselves um, from, uh, from our office here in D.C. or we have a lot of photographers out in Hawaii. But, you know, we have that banner up there that shows different things that DPA has been doing um, over the last, you know, two or three weeks, uh, the photos that are on that front banner. Um, but then if you are just interested in finding out more about the different conflicts and what we're doing to, uh, you know, to research those conflicts, there are, you know, there's FAQs and fact sheets about the different conflicts. There are, um, you know, there's maps that we have an interactive map in our past conflict section. Um, you know, there are literally lists on that can be found broken down via or uh, broken down either by service or by state um, for each conflict, each war, each conflict has, you know, has their own lists of how everything is broken down uh, often of both um, those who are still unaccounted for and those who have been accounted for. So there's like, like you said, there is all kinds of information on our website. You know, you really, if you went and really started digging down and everything, you could probably spend hours on our website and not see everything. Well, Jim and Sean, I want to thank you both for, you know, the work that you do and the mission that you're on and everything you're doing for, you know, these families of these service members. It's, you know, it really is wonderful to hear and learn more about. And uh, I would encourage everybody to go on the DPAA website and take a look at some of those press releases because I have, um, once we got the press release about private sitars, I went through and read a couple and it's really just a, a, a good way, I think, you know, at least from our perspective to uh, honor their memory and at least learn a little bit more about who these uh, people were and uh, how they passed and how they're finally going to uh, join their family. So I would encourage everybody to just you know, even if you don't have hours, maybe just take a little bit and uh, peruse the website. Yeah, absolutely. We also have a, a Facebook page. Um, it's uh, facebook.com slash D-O-D-P-A-A. Um, and, you know, we put all of the, all the notifications for all the people that we identified. They go on our Facebook page and they all, and we also put other uh, other articles and photos and stories of, of different things to do with our mission up there. So definitely check that out um, if you're interested in what we're doing, because pretty much everything we do, uh, or I won't say everything, but a lot of the stuff we do goes up on our Facebook page as well.
And I should mention that actually uh, this episode is going to be released right near a National POW MIA Recognition Day, which I'm guessing is a, is a pretty busy day for you both. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're doing our uh, annual Vietnam government briefings uh, Wednesday and Thursday of next week. Um, where, and this is kind of like Jim had mentioned earlier, a family member update and um, what those and this briefings are is it gives us a chance to get together with families. Unfortunately, because of COVID, we're not doing it all in person like we normally would pre-COVID there. It's going to be mostly virtual um, done through, you know, live stream, both on our Facebook page and on the DPA website. But it, it's our chance to get together with families and let them know what's going on both in general, and then if the family wishes, they can also get a one-on-one -on -one meeting to find out what's going on with their specific case with their service casualty officer. Um, but we're doing that next week, and then on Friday next week is POW MIA Recognition Day. And uh, like you said, that is a big day for us. We do a big poster for that every year, um, which you can, which also is a thing that you can see on our website if you go to dpa.mil and scroll down just a little bit, you'll see there's a uh, button there where it says posters are available. You can always order a poster from us. It's it's absolutely free. Um, but then also that poster is specifically for POWMI Recognition Day. Um, there's a this year. There's going to be a ceremony at the Pentagon. There's almost always a ceremony here in DC. Um, this year it's going to be at the Pentagon. And like I said, unfortunately because <laughs> of COVID, there's not going to be as many people that are going to be allowed to be there in person. But it is going to be live streamed. And then uh, we're also doing another um, another uh, ceremony at our facility out in Hawaii that'll happen later that same day, just Hawaii time. Um, but yeah, the yeah the page that you're looking at now, you can uh, you can download a, a high res version of the poster there, the download the 2021 poster, or you can uh, order the poster, and we will send you. Uh, we have large ones, we have small ones, we'll send you, uh, send you some copies of the poster. Um, but the, uh, at this point, though, if you order right now, I'm not going to lie, it's probably not going to get there in time for POWMI Recognition Day next Friday, because um, they, uh, unfortunately, they don't get shipped out next day air, that would just be prohibitively expensive. Um, <laughs> but you can still order one if it's something, you know, somebody sees it and wants you know, once it is a keepsake or something, they they'll still be they'll be available until we're just out of stock. So great. Well, thank you both again, and thanks for joining us here on the the scuttlebutt. And you know, for all of our listeners out there, we hope in addition to checking out the DPAA's page and liking their Facebook, you also check out the BBC's content and the scuttlebutt. And we will be posting, like Sean mentioned, links for not only probably the DPAA website, but also the story of private sitars that we have been referencing throughout that everybody can check out. He has a truly remarkable story um, that we were able to speak to his family. Thank you, Catherine, for, for hosting this episode. And, and also make sure you check out Veterans Voices that Catherine does on YouTube. Uh, looking forward to more episodes of The Scuttlebutt. Please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell, leave us a review. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, Sean, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Uh, thank you once again to Sean and Jim for joining us. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing our audience again uh, in the future. 
I want to thank Millerstown Pick Apart for their generous support and sponsorship of this program. For Millerstown's hours, direction, inventory, and pricing, go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D.com. Thank you so much, Millerstown, and uh, we'll see you on the next Scuttlebutt.